special growth class event that we're talking about women leadership and the church. Thank you for everybody joining us online right now in the stream and watching this at a later time as well. Um, tonight, uh, we're talking about a topic that has, uh, that has been a topic that's been debated for generations and for thousands of years across uh, the church history. And, um, and tonight, I, I want you to know that uh, I'm going to teach the normal way I teach, which is, which is with grace and with, uh, with hopefully clarity and understanding, and, um, and so as we get into this topic, you know, the topic we're talking about, um, you know, I've, I've been around so many different pastors, churches, denominations, um, had different conversations, you know, with scholars, and, and, and read different things, and, uh, and all throughout, there's differing views on the topic we're going to talk about tonight, and, um, and with differing views, it doesn't mean that we have to be in different camps, that we can still be together and love each other, even if we don't come to the same conclusions. And, uh, and so on this topic, it's one of those topics. We're part of a movement of churches called Converge, Converge Worldwide, and Converge Mid-Atlantic. And actually, our movement of churches have churches on either side of this conversation tonight. Some of my best pastor friends are on a different view than I am on this, and we love each other. And, and we minister in the same uh, group of churches together. And so even our movement doesn't make a final statement on this, and they allow the autonomy of each church to, to come to their own conclusions in this area. And, um, and so we, we see that happen even in the body of believers and churches that we belong to, you know, 1,500-plus churches across the country, that on this topic, they all land in different spaces. And, uh, and we still minister together, and we still love each other. And that's, I believe, what the body of Christ should look like. And, uh, and so tonight, as we, we look at this topic, we can look at it culturally, we can look at it throughout history, we can look at it through our own biases or even politically. But I need you to know tonight— the only thing I'm using is the Bible, okay? So tonight it's all about the Bible, lots and lots of scriptures. So if you came and you have a notepad, fantastic. Get ready to write really quickly, okay? I would encourage you, seriously, like, you know, a Pastor Tim's sermon is usually one of these, right? I've got like six of these, okay? So like I've got lots of scripture, lots of notes, lots of things. And what we're basically going to be doing is just looking at scripture um, and, and so that we can gain clarity, we can gain understanding together, and so that I can share um, where we land as a church here at New Hope, and, and looking at these passages and unpacking them, and, and I'm going to do it in real time with you guys on my computer and show you, so we're going to go back to the Greek and click all sorts of fun stuff, you know, tonight's Bible study night, who likes Bible study, right, like so, so we're, we're getting into it tonight, okay, um, as, as we get in, into some of these passages and some of these verses, um, so that you know tonight there is no agenda, meaning like this evening wasn't brought because well, we got to take care of something, like that's not it. Uh, this is a topic that our leadership has been talking about for a long time. I've been studying it for the last five, six years because I grew up in a certain mentality and a certain tradition growing up. And, um, and then I actually started reading the scriptures and I started studying on my own instead of just accepting what I experienced and what I learned. And it's changed some of my perspectives and looking through the scriptures. And so tonight, there is, there is no agenda, meaning from, from behind. There's nothing that's hidden. There's nothing, anything from the leadership. We just want to, for us as a church, have clarity on this, on where we stand here at New Hope. And those of you who are watching online or watching this later, maybe you're watching it from another church, maybe another congregation, I, I need you to know this is just for us at New Hope. If you want to watch this and learn, that's fantastic. Um, but I would encourage you, you're under your own spiritual leadership and pastoral leadership at whatever church you're at. And, and I would encourage you to have those conversations you know, with them um, as, as you listen tonight. Tonight, this is for our New Hope family. Is everybody with me? 
Yeah, y'all with me? Okay. So my request tonight is, is that we will let love lead, and that even if we have differing views, we'll let grace fill in the, in the gap in between. And, um, and, uh, and so let's hop into it. Let me pray, and we'll jump in. So God, we thank you that you're not a God of confusion, that, um, that there are things you want us to learn and want us to know and want us to understand. And for us at New Hope, we are uh, digging in this together because we want to be on the same page and be unified on, on this topic and the other topics too. But, but I pray that, that tonight you would just fill me with your word as we look at your word. Help me to teach clearly and, um, and that we would unpack this with clarity with each other and that you just give us a great spirit of, of, um, of openness to what you want to say uh, to each of us, no matter where we're coming from, and that we, we would be humble and, and to listen to you and to your spirit in this process as well, God. And we thank you for this evening, and we thank you for this time, and, and uh, just pray over all of us in Christ's name. Everybody said amen. 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 Awesome. All right, is everybody ready? Because I got lots. So, so we're going to be talking about a, a difficult passage, right? Some difficult passages and difficult topics. And any time that I look at and teach and learn and study, th- this is the, the filter by which I study difficult passages. I look at the context, the culture, and to see if there's consistency all throughout the Bible of that specific topic or whatever that verse is. You want to make sure you understand the context of a verse. You're not just taking a verse pulling it out and making a whole doctrine off of it because it may not line up with the rest of the scriptures if you just pull one out and use it. And that's called abuse of the scriptures, right, to use for agenda. Culture, who was this letter written to? Why was it written to them? What was the heartbeat behind that letter? Who was the author? Like all that cultural piece of what we're reading in the Old Testament and New Testament is that cultural piece as we look in scripture because that affects how it was written, who it was written to, and what was being shared. And then consistency, meaning what does it say on this topic throughout the whole Bible? Like, when we're looking at beginning to end, where do we see consistency in a theme of this topic, and, and what, what does this verse then fit into the consistency, and how does that work, okay? And so when we do that, when we look at difficult passages, we either come up to one, one or two things. This issue or this specific thing is prescriptive, which means, yes, this is something we see consistent all throughout the Scripture. We see it, it transcends culture, and it fits in the context of the whole Bible. And so this is something we must do. Like, it's prescriptive. It's prescribed to do as a Christ follower or in church or whatever it might be. Or is it descriptive? Is it something that, that is being described because of something that was happening in a culture, and we're learning lessons from what they were being taught and what they were experiencing, but we're not supposed to do the exact same thing because we may see somewhere else in another scripture that something else was done. So we see, okay, so this is being descriptive of what was going on, not necessarily prescriptive, but we need to learn from it, right? We need to understand it. And so that is the lens by which I want to look at this. And, and so when you think about the prescriptive and descriptive, I always use the Lord's Prayer as an example because the disciples asked Jesus, you know, like, teach us how to pray. And then Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he does, does this prayer. And the question is, he's telling him, this is what you should do. Is that prescriptive or descriptive? If it's prescriptive, then every time you pray, that is what you pray, Right? But we see other parts of Scripture where it says pray with all kinds of prayers, right? With petitions, with thanksgiving, with all sorts of other different kinds of prayers. We see in the Old Testament, David wasn't praying that specific words. He was just praying his heart out to God. So we see, well, then we see different things in different parts of Scripture. So this must be descriptive. When you pray, this is a way to pray, and you learn from that prayer. Does that make sense? 
So it's not necessarily prescriptive, but it is descriptive and teaches us a way to pray and a heartbeat behind praying. So that's an example of the prescriptive and descriptive as we're looking at these passages today, okay, as we dig into this uh, together. So let me start with some terms um, that uh, you may have heard or may not have heard when it comes to this topic of women in ministry or just the relationship between men and women uh, in the church and in scriptures. Um, the, one term is complementarian, and another term is egalitarian. Uh, if you've studied this, those are the big words, all right? Um, complementarian is, is a view of, of women— um, well, I'm going ahead of myself. This is these two views of how we relate together, men and women together, and the role of women in church uh, are like this. So both of these views believe that men and women are creating God's image, that they have value, they have equal value with God, uh, that they both have salvation through grace or both are co-heirs with Christ and have gifts to use in the church. So both have, there's unifying themes, you know, between an egalitarian view and a complementarian view. But then when it comes to specific roles is where the differences start coming out, okay? So a complementarian view is, is that women cannot lead or preach or teach in church, uh, that men and women have specific roles in marriage and in family, um, that, that men are the heads and women must submit to men. And so that's a general statement. I could go a lot longer on that, but I just want to give you a general idea of the complementarian view. That, that women have their place, but it's to complement men in church and life and marriage. Does that make sense? So that's a complementarian view um, when we're talking about the role of women. Then you have the egalitarian view, which swings to the other side, which says that women can lead, preach, or teach in church, that men and women mutually lead in marriage and in family, and that there's an equality on all fronts when it comes to men and women in church and culture and marriage and family. So that's the egalitarian, that there's an openness to church leadership. Family roles are based off of strengths, not necessarily roles and mutual leadership in the household. So you see the differences between the two views. These are the views that have been debated for generations, right? This is, this is the, the people that pull out scriptures for this one and scriptures for that one, and, and, and we see this lived out culturally in different countries and cultures. We, we see this, this whole idea um, played out in, in many different ways. Now, there's dangers on both sides, right? With anything, if you go too far one way or too far the other way, you're going to experience dangers on either side of these views, the complementarian view, if you go way too far on that point of view, uh, you see that women start to become stifled, silenced, or controlled, meaning they, they don't really have any say or can't have any say, um, that men see themselves as superior to women, and there becomes a chauvinistic culture that can develop because men are better than women, and we are the ones that lead, so you just need to be quiet. That's like a far swing, Right? Um, where it can become that culture, whether it's in the home, it can become that culture, or in church, or even just in public, it can become that kind of culture, and that's dangerous. I don't see that in scripture anywhere. There is no space for mistreatment of anybody. Like, that's, that's just wrong, so you can go way far to that way. The egalitarian side, if you go way far to that side, it, ten, it turns into what I would call as like um, women's lib movement, where women have felt oppressed for so long that they swing to the other side where they want to oppress the men, and they want to put them down and make them look less and try to lead over them in a sense of control, even to the point of abuse or verbal abuse. 
it becomes woman power, um, and they want to oppress or put down women. So you have this other view over here that's really dangerous and is actually exactly what's happening over here, but on the opposite side. And both extremes are wrong, right? <laughs> like both, both extremes are not a biblical view. And so when we're trying to understand this whole topic of how do we relate with each other as men and women, and specifically tonight, we're talking about women in leadership in the church, okay? That's where we're going, but I'm talking with some generalities as we start this conversation, um, that, that I believe the scriptures are somewhere in the middle of all of it, which it so often is. <laughs> so often when man makes up words and they put titles to things, they're swinging different ways to what we see in scripture. And tonight I'm hoping that I'll be able to teach us and see that there is a middle way, and I believe that there's a way biblically that for us at New Hope that we're going to be moving forward with in what that relationship looks like here in ministry and in leadership and for really any woman that shows up to be a part of the body of Christ here at New Hope Church, that we want to have the right, uh, right position. So, so I'm letting you know right from the beginning, my stance is somewhere in the middle, okay? <laughs> And, uh, and, and that's where I'm preaching from um, on this topic. I'm going to try and um, be, uh, how do I want to say this? I'm going to try to represent both views in the conversation, but I, I'm also just going to preach exactly what I see in Scripture, okay? Does that make sense? Because I do have an opinion, and, and, and my opinion isn't based on Tim's opinion, it's based on the things that I've seen in Scripture and study and the things we're going to go through today and to the conclusion that we've come to here at New Hope. All right? So, so those are the generic or the general topics um, when we're talking about um, this idea of how men and women relate together. Now, I'm just going to hop right into the most debated Scriptures. Ready? Here we go. So the most debated Scriptures um, as we get into this is in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm starting with these, and we're going to end with these. So I'm not going to dig deep into them right now. I just want to present them. Then we're going to go through a lot of scriptures and a lot more scriptures and a few more scriptures, and then we're going to come back to these two passages. Because with, with no context, culture, consistency, we don't know if these are prescriptive or descriptive. And so we want to dig into God's Word so that we have a solid foundation to come back to it and filter it through the biblical lens. Okay, so this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 14. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And you think, well, we just read that. Let's go home, right? That's, so ladies, shh, you know, like, like that's what, that is what you would read if you just read it up front and you took that passage out of the context of all of Corinthians. And if you didn't read all these other scriptures, that's what many people have come to the conclusion of. Well, I want to paint a picture of what's going on in context, culture, consistency on this topic. And this is one of the most controversial ones and has been for a long, long, long time. The other one is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So this is the other one. That is the big one that especially those on the complementarian view, these are their home run passages, right? These are the ones that they say, see, and that's why this is supposed to, way it's supposed to be biblically, and, and that's the end of the conversation. Well, if that's where you end the conversation, you ignore all the rest of the scriptures. And, uh, and so I want to look at all the rest of the scriptures. Does that sound good? 
so that we can get a filter. As you can see, I don't lean on the complementarian side when it comes to church and leadership. I, I, I used to, but I've read the scriptures and I've changed my mind um, in this process as I've read through the scriptures. So I'm just being up front with you guys. Um, that's not fully where I land. And you'd say, well, then he must be egalitarian. I'd say, nope, I'm not egalitarian either. What? Let's read the scriptures. Sound good? Yes. You guys are going to be quiet. Okay, some of you are. <laughs> All right. So, so I want to build, I, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six. All right, so I've got six main points. We're going to talk about women in leadership in the Old Testament, women in ministry and leadership through the New Testament. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts in the New Testament. We're going to talk about submission, submitting to someone, and women and men submitting. We're going to talk about that topic, and then we're going to talk about leadership in the church is where we're ending the conversation. And if I have time, I'm going to go to the two most misused passage against women in leadership, if we have time. Okay? So there you go. There's my main points, and we're digging into women in leadership through the Old Testament, because I am building the case that we see something different in Scripture than we see if we just take those passages, and there's our doctrine on this topic, okay? So are you guys ready for this? So number one, we're talking about women in leadership through the Old Testament. Where do we see it? I mean, are there women who are actually leaders in the church or in, over Israel or, or like actually spiritual leadership over anybody? Like, did that really exist in the Old Testament? The answer is yes. There are clear examples of this in the Old Testament um, that we see women in leadership. We see actually in Exodus when they were being brought out of slavery um, from Egypt, Miriam the prophetess, notice the words, Miriam is a woman, a prophetess, Aaron's sister took the tambourine in her hand, and with all the women, they went out after her in the tambourines, and they were dancing. I mean, they were celebrating. And we see at this, at this moment, there were women who were serving as prophets to the Israelites in the land of slavery that they were in. God was using and speaking through women to the Israelites, and I'm going to explain more about what prophets do and, and, um, and what these women were a part of in uh, in Israel, right, for the Jews. And then we see in Judges chapter 4, verses through 4 through 5, which is, uh, you know, the, the biggest example of what we see of, of a woman in leadership over Israel. Um, in, in Judges 4, we see now Deborah, and who was Deborah? Deborah was a prophetess. The wife of uh, that dude was judging Israel, so she was sitting as judge over Israel. This is a big deal, because, uh, let's keep reading, uh, over Israel at the time, she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah, she had her own tree, be, uh, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went up to her for what? For judgment. She was sitting as judge and prophet. Uh, when we read this word prophet, the Old Testament judge and prophet, their role was to lead Israel. Like, their role was to be God's mouthpiece to God's people. And we see Deborah, we see Miriam earlier, we see Deborah, we're going to see in a, in, a, in a minute, Huldah, were all women who were prophetesses. They were, and she, Deborah, was a judge over Israel. She was leading Israel. She led the military front. She was in charge of the military battles that were going on and happening. She brought back the Torah, God's word, and, and brought it back to the people, and she was God's voice to Israel. So imagine if somebody in that seat, do they have spiritual leadership and oversight over God's people? Yes, absolutely. There's no question about that. That was Deborah. That's the seat that Deborah sat in 
in this point of history. And so we see another Old Testament example of a woman in direct leadership over God's people as God's mouthpiece. Um, so we get into, that's not supposed to say Judges down there. That's Second Chronicles 34, if you want to write it down. Second Chronicles 34, 22 through 23. I did these slides really quick this afternoon. So Second so Chronicles 34, 22 through 23 talks now about Huldah, because this is the point of history where, um, where the Jews had lost the law. They hadn't been reading the law. They, they, didn't, they weren't living into the law. And all of a sudden, they found it. And the king was like, you got to be kidding me. And they start to mourn, and they're like, we got to figure this out. What is the law? And so this is what the response was. So, so Hilkiah um, and those whom the king had, uh, had told went to Huldah, the, say it with me, prophetess, right? The prophetess, again, sitting in that seat. Uh, and then it says, and they spoke to her regarding this. And then she said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. She was the mouthpiece for God to God's people to call them back and to understand the law that they had hidden, and now they were being revealed again. So we see again in the Old Testament another prophetess, Huldah, who was bringing them back and was God's mouthpiece to God's people in Israel. Okay? So we see examples in the Old Testament. Um, this is what I read today. It said, Huldah was regarded as a prophet accustomed to speaking the word of God directly to high priests and royal officials, to whom high, high officials came for supplication, who told the king and the nations of their fates, who had the authority to determine what was and what was not genuine law, and who spoke in a manner stern command when acting as a prophet. So you see this position is a pretty high position <laughs> when it came to God's people in Israel. And so we see these examples in the Old Testament of godly women being called and positioned and the Holy Spirit upon them to serve in leadership and spiritual leadership over God's people. Now, I don't have time to mention all of them. We also see some pretty powerful, um, you know, women throughout the rest of the Old Testament as well. Rahab is mentioned quite a bit, Esther, Hannah, Ruth. There's other women who had significant roles, obviously, throughout the whole Old Testament um, that, that God used. So God uses everyone, and I'm just trying to make the point that we see an example and a model in the Old Testament that God chose, picked, decided, and put women in place in leadership over his people um, to lead them to be his voice and his word to them, okay? So that's the Old Testament, really quickly, um, as we look at that. And so then we transition in, and we come into the New Testament. Jesus shows up. A new covenant starts to be put in place. Um, we see so many examples in the New Testament of, of this shift from Old Testament to New Testament, because we see Jesus show up on the scene, and, uh, and they even taught about it during our Christmas series. Somebody that always gets overlooked is, is right at the very beginning of the story with Jesus as he's taken to the temple in Luke chapter 2, verses 36, and then verse 38, because in the temple there was a, again, what's the word? A prophetess, Anna. So Anna's been waiting for the Messiah to come, and she's serving as a prophetess. She sees she hears from God, and she, she speaks it. She's serving in the position of and in the authority of, of being a prophet, a prophetess. And it said then in verse 38, and she continued to speak about Jesus to all those who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So she, I would consider one of the first ones who's, here's the Messiah. Here's the, she's teaching about the Messiah and saying, he's here, he's here, he's here. And this was the prophetess Anna right at the beginning of the story in the New Testament um, we see that she is sitting in that position and in that role. We see um, later on in Luke chapter 8, 
verses 1 through 3, and there's a word in here that um, I, I've been studying a lot of words, <laughs> like uh, more, than, more than a long time getting into the Greek because I want to know that I know like what I'm reading in this passage because this is a passage in um, Luke chapter 8 that I think it's overlooked, and I don't want us to overlook it when we're talking about this topic. It's, it says in Luke 8, uh, verses 1 through 3, it says, Soon afterward, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, so we know that, the twelve disciples, right? Okay, we all have a high view of the twelve disciples, but that's not where it ends. So, so yeah, the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. So we know this, that the disciples that followed Jesus weren't just the twelve, there were more that were following Jesus as well and going on the journeys along with him. And right there, it's, you know, um, Luke is talking about these women that were following him. And there's a certain word I want us to pull out. So there was Mary, who was called uh, Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, cool name, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others. So do you see what I'm saying? It's like there were lots of disciples following Jesus. And, and when we see these, these next words, I don't want you to miss these next words, um, who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Contributing to their support. So they were supporting the ministry, right? They were supporting the ministry. Now, it's interesting, when you actually look at the words, I don't know why they translated it contributing to their support, because all four of those words are actually the word for deacon. It's, it's the word diakoneo. I'm not great at speaking Greek, okay? It's all Greek to me. Um, Sorry, weak joke. Okay, and it's the word deacon or to minister. So what it was saying is many others who were ministering out of their own private means. They were deacons, deaconesses. That's the literal Greek word there, out of their own means. So we consider these people as like, you guys are like sub-story people. You're not the top 12. So you're kind of there, but you're not really there. And so often, it's like we miss it. We miss these words, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. They were serving and ministering alongside Jesus and the top 12 disciples. They were all ministering together. And so I don't want us to, like, erase that from history. Like, these women were with Jesus, were ministering alongside the disciples, and were disciples with Jesus Diakoneos, right? Deacons alongside. That's, when I read that, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. How did I miss that? So these women were being a part of the ministry, not just by giving money, but serving and ministering and walking alongside with Jesus. This is what I'm saying. When we see Jesus, he wasn't lessening um, or what culture was doing with women. Like he was elevating women all, all throughout. You see who he had some of the deepest conversations with, the people that he ran into. You think about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, like somebody, both, like you're, I'm not supposed to talk to you because you're a woman and you're a Samaritan, and that's who he chooses to go to. And he says, now, and she leaves and says, let me bring everybody from my town to you. Talk about a gospel witness. So we see this throughout the New Testament, and, and we see that Jesus was a model of empowering and blessing and, and seeing women minister alongside him and alongside the 12 disciples in that process. 
We see later on, after his resurrection, there were two that came and saw him first, and it wasn't the disciples. It wasn't the guys that came to the tomb. It was two women. It was the Marys, right? It was Mary and Mary came to, to take care of Jesus' body, and we see that they saw it was empty, and they left the tomb quickly in fear and great joy. They ran to report to his disciples, the twelve, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Rejoice! And they came up and and, uh, and, and took hold of his feet and worship him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go bring word to my brothers to leave for Galilee, and there uh, they will see me. So the first, this is an important part too. I think we know that this didn't happen by accident. This wasn't like, oops, that was supposed to be Peter, but he was napping. Like, no, like we see this in Scripture, and it's there for a reason. Because the first testimonies of the resurrection were two women. And I think that matters. I think that matters. Um, and they were the first two to exclaim the resurrection to the disciples. I think that's powerful. And, and so we, anyways, I'll keep going. Then we get into, after the Gospels, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we get into the book of Acts, and all of a sudden the church is growing, and things are happening, and we start seeing you know, people doing things and preaching and ministers, all sorts of things. And here, here are two people that come up more than once in, throughout the New Testament that Paul talks about. And he talks about these, these two people, and it's a couple. It's a husband and wife. And Apollos was teaching, and he didn't quite have it right, but he was passionate, he was energetic, and he was out there preaching about God and excited about it. And, uh, and he, Apollos, began speaking boldly in the synagogues. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. So uh, Priscilla and Aquila knew more than Apollos did, and as a couple, husband and wife, pulled him aside and taught him. So they we're teaching the teacher. If somebody's teaching a teacher, they have authority, right? There's authority in teaching a teacher who's going to go out and continue to teach. And so we see this power couple that we also see in Romans chapter 16. I'm going to show you in a moment. A man and a woman, a husband and wife, using both of their gifts to minister to the church. And so we see Priscilla, obviously she's mentioned um, on purpose, and, and it's interesting that she's usually, well, not usually, she's, she's mentioned first before the husband, which is not typical how they would write that. It's, it would be the husband and the wife's name, and this, it's not, it's Priscilla, and then it's Aquila. It's like, she's better, he's okay, you know, that could, no, I'm just kidding. Like, <laughs> but it's a, but you see a prominence there in that, in that thing. So you see Priscilla, a woman in ministry in the New Testament church, the Holy Spirit's growing, and then we see later on in Romans chapter 16, which there's so much in Romans 16, that, um, that we see that Paul is blessing, encouraging, thanking um, these women. And he again goes back in the greetings at the end of the book of Romans, which the book of Romans is one of the most theologically rich books of the Bible about the doctrine of the gospel of salvation. Like, it is so good. Like, I'm, I'm hoping soon we'll do that's going to be one of the books we do, okay, on Sunday mornings. It's just so good. And, and so such a theologically rich book, and at the end, he's giving honor and giving thanks to people that have ministered alongside with him. And he, he says, so greet Prissa, which is, which is Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risks, risks their own necks for my life, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So he's like, not only me, but... All of the churches give thanks to Priscilla and Aquila. Like that is a, talk about a big major like shout out from Paul. You know, like, like he's like, I'm kind of, you know, I'm doing some pretty good ministry, but also Priscilla and Aquila, all the churches of the Gentiles, just say thank you to them. 
So obviously, he's honoring them. Um, also, greet the house or greet the church that is in their house. So he makes a proclamation saying, and the church that's in their house. They're leading a church in their house. Someone say, well, that doesn't mean they're leading the church. I say, but did Paul mention anybody else? I think he mentions the people who are leading, right? He's saying thank you to the people who have made the most impact. And Priscilla and Quilla and all the churches are thankful to them, but some other pastors leading the church that meets in their house? I'd be like, I'd hate to be that preacher, right? Like, 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 because, like, Paul's not talking about Bill, you know, he's talking about Priscilla and Quilla. Like, do you see what I'm saying? So he's like, he's thanking them for their leadership, their co worker, their fellow worker alongside him. So this is a power couple together ministering to the church that's made an impact on all the churches that the Gentiles are a part of and the church that meets in their house. And so we see this example through the book of Acts and through Romans with Priscilla and Aquila, which are a big deal. Now, we look at, is everybody with me? Sorry, I know, I'm just, I'm just, okay, because I got a lot to cover. So in Romans 16, like I said, there's a lot in it. The beginning of Romans 16, um, verses 1 and 2, we see him also mention somebody at the very beginning, and, and this is what he says, I recommend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deaconess, a servant of the church, which is in um, Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. That's a pretty big sentence, right? Worthy of the saints, those who are ministering, and Christ follows, right? And that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and myself as well. This word right here, deaconess, deacon, it's the same word I talked about earlier, right? It's, it's that diakoneo, it's the deacon, it's to minister, it's to serve in the church, and it's not just like you're just a servant, it's a position, it's, it's, it's the title of, it's, it's, um, it's a position of honor in the church family and in the Christ family. So he is commending her as a deaconess, serving in the church. And, uh, and it's a pretty big deal that he picked her to be the one to deliver this letter to Rome. That's a big deal, too, because whoever's carrying that letter also carries the authority with that letter to be the one to answer the questions for that letter, because she was the one that was with him when he wrote the letter. And she said, now you are the sender, and I'm going to tell them, receive you as in the role that you serve in the church and with whatever you need. He is, he, do you see what I'm saying? He's elevating and, and thanking Phoebe for the role that she plays in the church body as well. See, later on in Romans 16, this is why I say Romans 16. When I, when I first read Romans 16 when I was studying all this, you know those moments you read the Bible and you're like, why didn't I ever see that? Did you ever have those moments? I mean, I still have those moments. I've read, I've read so much of the Bible. I still have those moments all the time. I'm like, why haven't I seen that? And the moment I wrote, read Romans 16, I'm like, if Paul is thanking and celebrating all these women, why did he write what he wrote in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians? Because this scene, there's, there's a tension here. Because he's thanking these women for the ministry that they are doing, but then he's saying, but you're not allowed to talk in church. Do you feel the tension? And I was feeling the exact same thing. And when I wrote Romans 16, you know, so many years ago, I'm like, I need to, I need to understand this. Because then in Romans 16, later on in verse 7, he, he continues in his greeting. He says, greet Andronicus and Junius, or Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. So he's like, he's saying these two individuals, they knew Christ before I knew Christ. I mean, they, 
they must have known Christ before the death, burial, and resurrection. Like, they, they knew Jesus and were disciples of Jesus and were among the apostles. And he says, and Andronicus is a guy, but Junius is a girl. So here's this woman, he's saying, my kinsman, like my fellow prisoner, this is like the fellow worker who is outstanding among the apostles. Meaning, I'm mentioning them because they're something else. There's something special about Junia. Now, Junia, I'll just, I'll just let you know, this whole verse right here is it, the ones that go really far down the egalitarian view. This is their passage. Because they say, see, Junia was an apostle, capital, capital A apostle, and she was like, like Peter and like them. I'm like, whoa, 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 okay. Now you're filling in the gap of some scriptures that I'm not reading here. But what we do know is Junia obviously was important, and she was outstanding. <laughs> she, was, she was, you know, lifted up amongst all the apostles, which I would consider that as she was one of the apostles, meaning that she was with Christ and followed Christ before his death, burial, and resurrection. And he's obviously honoring her for that. And then we see another passage in Philippians, so a different letter, a different community, a different culture. Oops, I didn't put that one up here. So this is Philippians uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 2 and 3, where he talks about Judea and Syntyche which is a hard name. And this way he says that I urge, I urge uh, Yudia and I urge uh, Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement as well as the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So he mentions two more women who are fellow workers in the work and he's trying, they must be not getting along and he's like, help them get along, right? He's, he's writing to them a letter to help them. Like, just get along, like, like help them, help them to find unity. Okay, whew, everybody take a big breath, everybody breathe in, and breathe out. So, so all I wanted to do is help us get a, an, an idea of the consistency we see in Scripture, Old Testament to New Testament. Where are women where are women in leadership? Where are women um, in ministry in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Okay? And I believe that's what all these passages are showing us. That women have not been excluded from uh, any role from serving alongside to preaching and teaching and correcting um, to being a deacon um, to being mentioned among the apostles. Like, we see all of it in the Old Testament and the New Testament that God has positioned and, and has honored through the scriptures these women who have served in these roles. And so when I'm looking at consistency, that's what I'm looking at throughout the scriptures. Okay, so that's Old Testament, that's New Testament. I'm doing pretty good, that's 41 minutes, awesome. Okay, we got this. So those passages, like I said, are, are the passages that, that when you read the 1 Corinthians um, 14 passage and the 1 Timothy 2 passage, that bring conflict to the conversation, right? It's like, well, which one is right? Because they're both in there, right? They're all in there. So which one is it? How do we understand this? Well, let me move to now my next point, which I want to talk about which is spiritual gifts in the New Testament, okay? Um, so when we see spiritual gifts, um, 
in the New Testament, we do not see that the Holy Spirit discriminates between genders when giving the gifts. That the Holy Spirit chooses to give gifts to who he wants to. And we don't see in situations where it says, so women get these gifts and men get these gifts and, and it can't go vice versa. We, we don't see that in Scripture anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, even in the Old Testament, when people had the Holy Spirit come upon them or to serve, like I read earlier, like he did not discriminate between men and women in that, like the Holy Spirit, uh, we see, gives gifts to whoever. So, so the false belief would be that only men get teaching or prophecy or leadership gifts, and women get more mercy, helps, or maybe gifts of service, and that's the way it's supposed to be, because that's how you're supposed to serve in the church, because that's what those passages say. But that's not what actually happens, and that's not what we see in Scripture, right? And that's not what we see today. We see men and women both get different kinds. Of, we see men that get gifts of service who love being behind the scenes. We see women who get gifts of leadership or teaching or prophecy, and how do they use that in the life of the church? We, we see that all through, and actually, here are the examples I want to show in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that show us one of the biggest tensions, which is speaking gifts, right? The, the gifts that are used by the tongue, right? Those, those, the teaching, preaching, prophesying, you know, uh, um, those kind of gifts that, that, um, that we're going to see. Well, let me just read the passage. So this is uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, which is actually the prophecy from Joel chapter 2, verses 20 through 29. This is God speaking about what was going to happen when the Holy Spirit showed up. It says, and it shall be in the last days that God says that I will pour out my spirit on what? On all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And your young men will see visions. And your old men will have dreams. And even on my male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. We see that there is, there is no gender when it talks to like it's not like the men will get to prophesy and the women just get to have dreams and not talk about it in church right like it's not what it said it's like he's going to pour out the spirit on all men and all women in the last days and that's what he has done welcome that's the period of church history we get to live in which is a great time to live guys and gals right when i say guys i mean it in general right um i don't know the greek word for guys and gals but um so we see in, in this passage that was God's intent from Joel in the Old Testament to be lived out in the book of Acts through the New Testament and now what we live in today, that even the gift of prophecy, and I'm going to tell you what that means in a minute. So even later on in Acts chapter 21, uh, verses 8 and 9, we see again this whole idea of women who have a speaking gift, a gift of, of a prophetess. So um, this was Paul as he was heading on his way to Jerusalem, and people were trying to stop him because they're like, no, you're going to get in trouble in Jerusalem. And, and so he's staying at, uh, at, that, at, at, um, at uh, Philip's house, the evangelist. So on the next day, he went and left and came to Caesarea, and he entered into the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were what? Prophetesses. So we see this word again, prophets, Old Testament, New Testament, men and women. We see this word continually coming up over and over and over again. So I want us to define what is this word in the Greek, this prophetuo, right? Prophetuo is the Greek word for prophecy or prophets when we're talking about this passage. And he's saying, this, I didn't only give this to the guys, I gave this to women. And we can see the examples in the New Testament where he gave it to us. So this word means this. It means to prophesy, to be a prophet, or to speak forth by divine inspiration, 
to predict, and let me read the whole thing, okay? It says to pro- prophesy with, with the idea of foretelling future events pertaining especially to the kingdom of God, to utter forth, declare a thing which can only be known by divine revelation, meaning God's the only one that can give that to you, to break forth under sudden impulse and lofty discourse or praise of the divine counsels under like prompting, to teach, to refute, to reprove, to admonish, to comfort others, to act as a prophet, discharge the prophetic office. This is a pretty powerful role, is it not? Old Testament, New Testament, it's God's divine revelation and word to God's people was then and it still is today. Even to what it says, to teach, to refute, to reprove, to admonish, and to comfort others. When, when I see a teaching gift, this sounds like a teaching gift to me. It sounds like somebody representing God to the church body. And we see this example in the New Testament. We see this example in the book of Acts. And we see this happening in the church in Corinth, which is where that troubling passage in chapter 14 comes in. But we see it in chapter 11, where it was a part of the church experience. This whole idea, it says it this way, and this is also another kind of crazy passage that we can talk about for a moment. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, earlier in 1 Corinthians, this is what it says, every man who prays or prophesies, here's that word, with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. I'm not talking about the covering thing right now. I'm just talking about the word prophesying. So it's assumed that in the body of Christ, in the church gatherings, that both men and women were prophesying in the church body collected together. That's what was happening in the church in Corinth. Now, the church in Corinth was messed up. Like, you read the letters to the churches in Corinth, there were some crazy things happening in Corinth. It was a very—so we're going to talk about culture for a moment, all right? So culture. Corinth, Corinth, um, where are my notes on this? Corinth was a pagan city. It was was a pagan city that had pagan rituals of worship towards a goddess that was all about fertility. And so there were women who served as priestesses in that, whatever, how do you want to say that, in the temple, and their main job was fertility, which was prostitution. And in this culture, that was the key religion of the day. So it was ran by women who were dragging people into prostitution, basically, so that they could have fertility in their family, because that was the thing they were going for, to be honored and looked upon well in the culture. And so we see this tension of what was going on with the religion of the day in Christianity, which looked very different. Very different. And so we see Paul writing this letter to the church in Corinth, trying to clean up messes of what was going on inside of the church. There was lots of mess. Lots of mess and lots of different things happening. So he starts to teach them, like, you guys are all out of whack in your gatherings, in your worship services. They're all over the place. And that's not what God wanted. He said, God is a God of order. He wants order in the church. And so he's preaching and teaching them, like, this is the order that you guys need in your gatherings because the culture is telling you to do something different. But we want you to live godly lives, okay? So we see that's, that's the culture he is teaching into when he's, when he's teaching this. So this whole head covering thing is also for women has been like a debated thing. And it's different churches and different denominations where you have to wear a covering, you, you know, wear the doily or whatever it might be. And like, even like the Jews wear their, you know, their head coverings or things like that. And when I'm looking culturally, what he is talking about here is, is two parts, but we see women culturally would actually wear the whole, you know, Middle Eastern, cover your whole head and come in because you don't want to look like or represent the pagan world, which is they would show everything. 
because they're trying to get you to worship over here in this way. And they're like, women, you should be different than what the cultural women are doing. You should be covering your head, showing up respectfully. And when you prophesy, when you are part of the gathering, this is how you should pre- present yourself. Men, take off your hats, right? So I don't know if you grew up in churches. I'm just kidding. That was a joke, y'all. Because like, like I grew up in a church where it's like, you got to take off your hat when you're in that church building. And it's because of this. It became a legalistic thing, and I'm like, that's not what it means. Like, if you take off your hat, but your heart is still full of sin, you're still messed up. So when we talk about externals, and we start getting legalistic about the externals, we're missing the heartbeat of God, because it's not the externals covering your head or leaving it uncovered that causes sin. What's going on in your heart? What is your attitude? What how are you sinning against somebody you're in front of or sinning against God with what you're doing? And so when we get into these interesting topics, which like, you know, covering your head, uncovering your head, and, and in this passage in, in 1 Corinthians 11, if you get legalistic about it, yes, you're going you're gonna to try to do all things to fit into that law. And I've seen so many people ruin their faith because should I do this or not do this? Or, or do I need to cover? If I don't cover, am I, am I going to be sinning against God? And, and people go crazy with anxiety. Am I out of line with God? Because if I am, I know I'm sinning. I'm telling you, that's where legalism comes into the church and creeps in and causes way more sin than covering or uncovering your head would ever do. I see this culturally. I see he's talking to a moment in history of covering or uncovering, honor or dishonor. If I went to a country today where, where uh, or if Nikki and I went to a country today and we traveled and we were visiting a church and the majority of the women in that church covered their heads... I would say, would you mind covering your head to honor the people we're going to be with? No. We don't want to become a stumbling block for them in whatever we're preaching or whatever we're presenting to them. But it's not a sin issue. It's an honor issue. You with me? So in passages like this, if you start getting legalistic with it, I I think you're starting to get way out of balance in your theology and your doctrine, okay? The whole point in this part of the passage, the reason I brought it up, and that was a side tangent completely, was the fact that in the church, in the beginning, every man and every woman could prophesy. Men and women both were prophesying in the church, in the church in Corinth, in this point of history. So we see this whole idea of spiritual gifts, just really briefly, I'm not doing a full-blown, you know, two-hour study on spiritual gifts right now, but, but we see the example and the model that, that the Holy Spirit does not dis- discriminate between men and women on who gets what kind of gifts. He gives the gifts as needed to the body that needs it, and the body should be built up together with all the gifts being used, whatever it is, men and women, okay? All right. I'm checking that one off. Okay, so we're talking about women in the Old Testament, women in the New Testament. We talked about spiritual gifts through the New Testament that we see that God is not a discriminator. Holy Spirit does not discriminate. And now I'm going to get to the topic that I think is probably the most difficult part of the conversation because it comes down to the issue of submission which is a word none of us like. The moment you hear it, a lot of times it's like submission. It sounds like what I do to my dog. You know, like it sounds overbearing. It sounds, you know, we have all these different ideas about what does submission mean because I, I think there is a false doctrine, I'll call it that, I guess, that all women must submit to all men. And um, when I look at Scripture, I don't see that model. And I want to, so we're going to look at one, two, three, four, five big chunks of passages on this one, because I, I, this is the one that I think um, has messed up the church in history, 
um, that leans way too far on the complementarian side where it becomes overbearing and controlling. And, um, and obviously, we don't see that was Paul's example of how we treat women in the church. We don't see that as Jesus' example, how he treated women. That's not what he did. Um, and so this whole idea of submitting between men and women, where do we see this in Scripture? Where do we see consistency with this? And, and then how does that fit in as we're going to get to these difficult passages as well? Okay. All right. Submission between men and women. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 and verse 7. This is what it says. In the same way, you wives must sub- subject to your own husbands, uh, but, uh, yeah, subject to your own husbands, that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your pure and respectful behavior. Your, uh, your adornment must not be merely the external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on apparel, but it should be the hidden person of the heart with the imp- uh, imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Verse, down to verse 7, And you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in understanding, in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. And so we see in 1 Peter, we're talking about husbands and wives, right? We're seeing this relationship between a husband and a wife. And in this relationship, it starts right off in the same way you subject to your own husbands. This is the word submission, to submit yourselves under your own husband, okay? So you're going to see a theme arise in this conversation, okay? Um, some people, when they read these passages, especially if we're going to Ephesians chapter 5, I love, I love teaching young couples Ephesians chapter 5 because it's like, especially like, like the women are, that are getting ready to get married and they're like, you're going to tell me I got to submit to him? You know, like it's, like, it's like this whole thing of like, you know, like, well, you, you think your challenge is difficult. Wait till I tell what the guy he's got to do because it's even harder, right? Um, of what this whole submission thing looks like. Because, again, when we think of the word submit or being subject to, we think it as lording over. And that's not the picture we see in Scripture. If you lord over somebody, you're definitely not like Jesus. Jesus was lord, but he didn't lord over. He served under. That's who Christ is. And so we see this model with Christ in the church that he says husbands and wives. He says, husbands, that's the way you're supposed to love your wife. Sub, sub, submitting to or subjecting underneath somebody isn't so that they control over there. You should be serving up under and lifting you up. And that's the model that we see. But in this passage, we see this word submit to or sub, be subject to your own husbands in First Peter chapter 3. Now let's look at Titus uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. It's, he's talking to older women. He said, older women like, likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, in verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So again, we see this being subject to or submitting to who? Their own husbands, right? So we, we're seeing a theme kind of arise here. Now, the words, this is where we see in the Greek, the word for husband and the word for wife all throughout the New Testament is the exact same word for man and the exact same word for woman. 
And so it gets translated either man or woman or husband or wife, depending on the context that it's in there. And you're going to see in a moment, I think there's some spots where the English doesn't match up with what I see in the context of what's being talked about. Because right here, we're seeing husband and wife. Wife be subject or submissive up underneath. Now let's get to the fun passage, Ephesians chapter 5. And Ephesians 5 starts with this. Submit what? To one another out of reverence for Christ. It starts that whole paragraph with us talking to every believer. You're supposed to submit one to another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you're submitting to each other in the family of Christ as co-heirs of Christ, right? So that's the first challenge. We have to learn how to submit to each other. How does that work? How do I submit to you and you submit to me? Well, if we're living like Christ, we're submitting to each other out of love. We're building each other up in love, right? And so, like, submitting to somebody isn't letting them lord over you, but it's, it's letting them be in your life, being a part of the body. So he says, submit one to another out of reverence to Christ. Then he says, wives, submit yourselves to who your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also... Uh, wives should submit to their own husbands in everything. Now, if I end the conversation there, that's when the wife say, what? In everything? Well, let's see what the husband's supposed to do. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as what? Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Wives, would you love your husbands to do that for you? Is it easy to submit underneath somebody who is serving under in the position of a husband? Yes. God's picture and dream of submission is not our cultural view of submission. You with me? And so when we see this picture, it is a beautiful picture. And he's saying, as Christ loved the church, Christ gave himself up for the church. That's what husbands are supposed to do, to the, do for the wives, right? Uh, verse 32, this is a profound mystery, he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Well, it's like, which, which is it, Paul? Are you talking about Christ and the church, or are you talking about um, marriage? He's like, however, yes, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husbands. And so we see this relationship of submission. And in this picture in Ephesians, I'm going to read it now in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, and verses, uh, or chapter 3, verses 18 through 19. Are you seeing a theme kind of arise as we're talking about this whole idea of men, women, husbands, wives, submission? As we look at these passages, I'm looking at consistency throughout Scripture. How does this fit together? So Colossians verse 2, 10, same thing. And in Christ you have been brought into fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So again, we see that imagery just like Ephesians 5. Who is the head over everything and has authority over the church? Jesus, right? He is the one. We, the church submits underneath Christ. And then in chapter 3, verses 18, it says, wives, now submit yourselves to who? Your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So every time there's an encouragement for both in the spousal party, husbands and wives, this is how it should look. And this is what submission looks like. Christ is the head. The husband submits to Christ. As, as he's doing that, he's living like Christ, serving his wife who's submitting to him. So we see all this submission happening, all of this going on. So now if we take that to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we were just hanging out in just a moment ago, and we use the same language and we see it in context, I think the words were used wrong. That's just me. When I look at the Greek and I look at the original language, 
because our English language, I'm using the NASB, uses the word man and a woman. And, and I'm like, well, why did they use that there, but not in Ephesians, not in these other passages? Because he says, I, but I want you to understand, this is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Okay, that's established consistency throughout all the other passages. And, and, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So now we see God in it. So we see God, the Father, we see Jesus, we see man, and we see woman. And so if you take this passage, and that's just how you take it, it means, well, yeah, so it's God, Jesus, man, every man, and every woman, but that's not what it says. Even without me putting my little words next to it, it says the man is the head of a woman. It doesn't say all women. And so if I'm saying a woman, if a man is the head of a woman, that woman would be his wife. And so when I see this passage, I'm like, well, and I see this pattern through these other passages, and I'm lining all these up together, I see it should say, but I want you to know and understand that Christ is the head of every man, and, and the husband is the head of a wife, and God is the head of Christ. And so that, for me, aligns with consistency as I'm looking at all these other passages of how submission works between a husband, a wife, with Christ, with God. And so I see submission from wife to husband to Christ to God. And I'm like, well, what's the difference? in this kind of submission. Because we see, yeah, we're supposed to submit one to another. We see other places we're supposed to submit to the authority over us, meaning like the government and all that. We see that in Scripture. So there is submission to other authorities and things like that. But we're talking about this topic, men and women, women submitting to men. I don't see it as all women submit to all men. I see these relationships as different because I would say these relationships are covenant relationships. God's relationship with the son Jesus is a covenant relationship. God made promises to Jesus of what was going to happen and what he was going to do and then what's going to be accomplished when he sends Jesus back. There's a covenant relationship in the Trinity together. We see Christ's covenantal relationship with his church. He made promises and a covenant to the church of what he's going to do when he returns and show him back up and complete that covenant so we can be with him forever. I see a covenant relationship. I see a husband and a wife as a covenantal relationship. You are in an agreement with one another till death do us part. And our covenantal relationship means I'm choosing to put myself in covenant with you. And as you lead husband, I'm going to submit and serve under, and we're going to do this together. And so I see a difference when I read the passages, and I'm talking about this topic, that when you read them, and you get to that original language that all these relationships are covenant relationships, that submission is between husband and wife, not between all men and all women. I don't see that all men and all women in Scripture. And that's where I've landed on this topic. This one is weird because now you're thinking, well, if, if I was egalitarian, there would be no submission. Just husband and wife are just doing their thing, Right? That, that's what the egalitarian view is like, well, they just have their own strengths, their own roles, and they're just going to do their own thing, and nobody submits to anybody, and they just, they're just living together and doing their thing. Well, as I'm reading, as I've continued to learn and grow, and I'm like, no, I still see that biblical model. There is submission in the covenant relationship between God, Christ, husband, and wife. And it should look like the image in Ephesians chapter 5. It should look like a husband just as Christ gave himself up for the church, has given himself up for his wife, blessing her, <laughs> bathing her in the word, 
presenting her as holy and blameless. And the wife should be serving and submitting underneath a husband who is leading her in that. But then the other passage that we, we read um, in First Peter is like, but even if your husband isn't there, be the greatest example of Christ that you can to him. That's why that's in there. You're still supposed to be peaceable to win him over to Christ. So, so we get back to difficult passages. We get to look at culture, context, consistency. We get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 1 Timothy. And so looking at all these other areas of Scripture and, and trying to piece and put it all together, I'm going to actually walk us through, not on this screen, but on the big screens in a moment, um, looking at these passages in my fancy little Bible app so that you can see how this works all together from the original Greek and in the original languages. That's the wrong one. I shot it to the wrong thing. I don't want it up there. I want it up. I want it up there. Okay. So, um, can you guys read that, kind of? So, so that you know, if you're curious, it's like, what are you using, Tim? What's that app? What is it? It's, I, use a, I use an app called, um, all, oh, shoot, no, I, just, it, I just went blank. Olive Tree, that's what's called, the Olive Tree uh, Bible app, and so this is where I get all my, my Strong's and my NASB and all my studies and all my uh, resources, so this is what I used to study um, in this passage. So I want to look now back at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 31 through 36, so that we can understand how this works. So again, 1 Corinthians is the passage where we're seeing the church has been um, kind of out of line and disruptive, and, and he's trying to bring chaos or bring, bring order to chaos in the church. And so he's giving all these examples and, and, and what this looks like and, and how, how the church should operate in a gathering together. And so I'm going to start by verse, verse 29. So he's saying, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. Um, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent, for you, you can all prophesy one by one. So he's saying all of you who are together can prophesy one by one, which we go back to chapter 11, he said women will be prophesying, men will be prophesying in the church um, so that they can learn and may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves. So you see this word right here, Subject. This is to submit under, to subordinate, right? To, to put under obedience. It's, it's the same word as submitting to as, as all the other passages that we see between husbands and wives. So women, what's he talking about? Is he talking about a woman or is he talking about a wife? Let's keep reading. Are to subject themselves just as the law also says, which is interesting because you look at this law and I looked all over the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. There isn't a law that says this. So I'm like, what law is he talking about? Is he talking about like a verbal law or a cultural law that they had in Corinth? Or like, what law is he talking about? And I can't answer that question, to be honest with you. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands. Okay, so now we're talking about husbands. Husband, it's the same word, husband, man, man, husband, right? So those words are interchangeable. So you have to look at the context. Is he talking about a husband? Is he talking about a uh, a man, well, he's talking about a husband because he's saying, let them ask their own husbands at their home. So if he's talking about husbands, who is he talking about up here? It must be the wives. 
So if we're looking in context, he's saying, I would read it as, so the wives are to keep silent in churches, they're not permitted to speak, but to be submissive underneath their husbands, which we see that consistency throughout the scriptures. Those of you who are married, you're like, cool, I'm not married. Um, to subject themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands. So wives, ask your own husbands, uh, for it is improper for a, a wife to speak in church. Is that one way to look at this passage? That's an interesting way to look at the passage. It makes it look through a different lens if we're thinking about submission. Uh, we're not talking about all the men should be submitted because you've already said the women are, are talking, the women are prophesying. So if they're already prophesying and they're already bringing God's word to the body, why are you now telling them to not do it? Does it mean only single women can do it? But if you're uh, a married woman, you can't speak. So like, what is, the heck is he saying? Do you see the controversy? This is where you get to complicated passages. And then he asks a question in verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? I have no idea what that question means. I've studied this and studied this, and I'm still like, what the heck is that about? Because it seems like a far left question. It's like, so this is, this is the best interpretation I have with this passage, looking at all the other places in Scripture, looking at su submission, husbands and wife. This is the way I read this. I see women, if you have questions in the church, don't interrupt the church gathering because we're trying to keep an order in the church gathering. So if you're confused about something, don't like raise your hand and say, hey, hey, I have a question. Like, no, no, don't disrupt it. If you have a question, wait till you go home. Ask your husband. Okay, that makes sense. I can see that in that passage. If they're allowed prophesying, Okay, if they're prophesying, I mean, they're bringing God's word. They understand God's word. They're speaking God's word. If they don't understand and they're confused about it, that's not the place to be raising your hand and asking questions. That's the place to say, this would be the time for you to be quiet and then go talk to your husband at home because he's the one that's supposed to teach you and raise you up and wash you and bathe you in God's word. You're supposed to submit up underneath him. That's one interpretation. Other interpretation and this one is interesting that I heard another pastor friend of mine talk about because he connects it with the question next because the question is what was it from you that the word of God first went forth or has it come to you only it's almost as if you read like this sentence as a I said women can can talk in church but now I'm telling you the women aren't allowed and he's like wait a minute guys really men do you think you're the only ones that got God's word do you think you're the only one that has come to that it hasn't come to women I think you could read it that way. Actually, when you read it in the King James Version, let me click King James, that's exactly what the first word says. What? <laughs> in the King James. Like, that's the way it does in the King James. And, and uh, my buddy, he loves the King James, the, the pastor that, that read this, and he said, let your women keep silent. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, you think that it only came from you? Or it only came unto you? It's like, you gotta be kidding me. It came to the women, they're prophesying. So, it, so for me, when I read this passage, I do not see this as prescriptive. Women, stay quiet in the church. I see this as descriptive of what was going on in the church in Corinth, and Paul is answering a question and trying to help them gather themselves to have orderly worship, and this is obviously one of the areas that was creating disruption, so he, this is, he's put it in there. He's like, this is what's going on. And so this is, this is, this is what he said in that passage. So I do not see this as prescriptive. So in all churches, all gatherings, all women must stay silent. Because I tell you what, at New Hope, we have women who teach, we have women that preach, we have women that lead small groups. 
combined between men and women leading small groups? Like, I, I, don't, see, I don't see this being played out in churches all across everywhere and culturally fitting. And I don't see it biblically as a command that should always be done in every single church gathering. I see it as descriptive, and I see it, it can, that's why it's the, one of the most debated passages when it comes to this topic. Um, but that's where, that's where I land on that. Okay, I gotta hurry. Dadgum. Okay. Um, let me go back to NASB Strong's. Um, so let's go, to, uh, okay, we gotta hurry. Let's get to the big one. Okay. I just looked up at the clock. Now let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and, and the, back to this passage. So he starts in chapter 2 and he's talking about prayers, petitions. He talks, talks about the guys, like, you know, be praying. Um, therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lift up hands. And he says, okay, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modesty and discreetly, with, uh, not with braided hair, gold pearls, or costly garments, but rather of means of good works, proper for women, making themselves a claim of godliness. Have we read this somewhere else? Yes, and all these other passages, when he's talking to the wives, he's like, and the women, he's like, you should show yourself not as like the pagans, not as the world, not as the culture, because that's Ephesus as well. Uh, Ephesus was a messed up place, also had, you know, that same kind of worship that Corinth had. Uh, priest, uh, priestesses that were basically offering in prostitution to the goddess uh, for um, fertility and all that stuff. It was the same culture that was happening in Ephesus, and it was a very rich culture, so there was a lot of greed happening. And so women would be dressed to the nine and look at me, and he's like, you shouldn't look like the world. That's not the point. It's not, it's not like, so don't do that because it, you know, might offend somebody. He's like, no, like, you're supposed to look different than culture. It's not about what's on the outside, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim of godliness. Like, it's, it's what's going on inside, right? And then he says this, right? A woman must quietly receive instruction out of entire submissiveness. Now we're back to that submissive word. Submissive how? Well, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, I'm going to do something here, going back to my passage, because then he goes, for it was Adam who was formed and created, and then Eve. So who was Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve were husband and wife. That, they were the first husband and wife. They were the first image of, of creation of husband and wife. And so he's now talking about a husband and a wife, and he's talking about later on preserved through childbearing. So, okay, yeah, you pretty much have to be a wife to have a baby. That's the way it's supposed to work. Um, and, and so this is this picture that he's given. So when I get to this passage, a woman must quietly receive instruction out of submissions. I'm going to replace that word for wife. It's the exact same word, right? So you click here on woman. It means both a woman, especially a wife, a wife, a woman. That's the Greek when you get to that word. So if I say a woman or a wife must receive instruction quietly with entire submissive, okay, I get that. That's that submissiveness of a husband and wife together. And he says, but I do not allow a wife to teach or exercise authority. This is an interesting Greek word. It's found nowhere else in Scripture. And this word means to usurp authority over, to dominate. I mean, you read the word, one who with his own hands kills another or himself. Like, this is a powerful word right here. He's saying, I, basically, if I read this, I do not want a wife to teach or take control over a husband which unfortunately is a part of, I wouldn't say the curse, but the consequence of sin in, the old, in, in, um, in Genesis. A woman's desire would be for their husband, to be for over their husband, and he's saying, I don't want a wife to be trying to control or exercise authority or take control from her husband because that's not the image we see even through the consistency of the rest of the passages that talk about husband and wife, right? And so when I look at that consistency, that's where I would look at this passage 
For it was Adam who was created uh, first and then Eve. And this is right here, this is the main complementarian passage. This is the passage that says, see, Paul goes straight to the creation order and says, see, Adam was created first, then Eve, and that means men rule over women. I'm like, hmm. But when I look at the creation order and I go back to Genesis, it says something different. So God created mankind, so all of mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves and has the ground. So in the creation, before the fall, we see God's image of this relationship between Adam and Eve. Pretty amazing. He created them in their image, in God's image. There's them, right? And he called them together to rule and to relate in the garden. Now, now this is where somebody would say, Tim, you're a heretic, because no, this is what it says here. Well, now we have conflict. Why is he talking about Adam and Eve and the creation order of Adam and Eve? And then he says, and it was Adam who was deceived, but the woman, it wasn't Adam, but it was the woman that was deceived and fell into transgression. But then we see he says in Romans something completely different. So it's like, well, which one is it? Because in Romans, uh, this is what he says, and I'm doing this really quickly, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind, because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but the sin did not count it against anyone, there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from who? Adam, until Moses, even over those who had not, com- um, had not sinned in the likeness of the violation, committed by who? Adam, who was a type of who was to come. So we see in Romans, he says, no, it was Adam's fault. And now we're saying, no, it's Eve's fault. So this creation order thing and this Adam and Eve thing, I, we could have a long discussion about this one. This is where we get into conflict. I do not see this when he's talking about this passage as Adam and Eve being that man leads over women. Women aren't allowed to lead in church. I don't, I don't see it that way. I see husband and wife relationships in this passage. I see the whole going back to how husband and wife relationships work in all the other passages. I see the created order. Um, Yes, yeah, Adam was created first and then Eve. We see that Adam sinned and Eve sinned. They they, they sinned. I mean, they both sinned and fell in discretion. But then it says, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So now he's, this is such a confusing passage, is it not? This is why it's been so conflicting for generations. um, Because you can read it in so many different ways. So does that mean women, the only way you can be preserved, and actually the word there is saved, uh, women are preserved or saved, um, to say, preserve, to do well, to be made whole through bearing a child. So sorry, ladies, if you don't have a kid and you're not married, you don't get preserved. No. Salvation isn't through you having a baby. So why is he saying that? It's got to be because of what was going on in the culture. He's speaking to something. And so when you see in Ephesus, their whole religion and pagan religion was about fertility. It was about having babies. And it was about priestesses and and like that whole process. And so I, I see he's speaking against the culture to say, this isn't, we don't look like that. You're, you're not saved because you have a baby. That's, n- that's not a part of us. 
but if you continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So he's calling them to a holy life as a woman. He's saying, don't look like the other women. Don't adorn yourself. Don't look like, you know, all dressed up. Don't look like godly, godlessness. Look like godliness. Submit to your husbands. And so th- when I read these passages, this is a difficult one, and I'm being honest with you, it still is a difficult one. Um, but I see this passage as descriptive of what is going on in Ephesus because I can't give you a direct prescriptive this is what you're supposed to do because of this passage. Some would say, yeah, it does say this. It says, women are not supposed to lead in the church and not supposed to have authority men. Well, then what do we do with all the other passages where women had authority over men and spiritual authority in the church? We've got to throw one out or the other or, or we've got to live in conflict with it the rest of our lives. I have to look at it through the context of culture the lens of what he's trying to do. Okay. Is anybody tired? That's, okay, I got 10 minutes to wrap this puppy up. Okay. So, so then he continues on in 1 Timothy chapter 3, okay? And, and, um, and so this is where I'm landing tonight in this discussion of, uh, of what we're talking about. So I, I want to bring this then to leadership in the church, Okay. Because leadership in the church is, is the topic of chapter 3. And this is what it says. If we can, yeah, pull back up there. So this, this is what it says. It says, It is a trustworthy statement that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, it's interesting. And just, uh, when you go, over, if I hover over man, let's see what the word is there for man. Oh, wait, it's not the word man. There's man in there, but it's some or any persons or any object. So this is where I say, well, why did they put the word man? Because it really should say, it's a trustworthy statement that if anyone or anybody aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work that they're desiring to do. For an overseer, then, must be above reproach. And this is where we see, okay, well, it's the husband of one wife. And this is the same word. Yeah, okay, so it says husband there. And wife, that makes sense. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, great word, but gentle, peaceable, free of the love of money. And it says he must be one who manages his household. But this he must isn't there in the Greek. It's anyone who is there should manage their household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man, and again, we look at the word man, it's that word anything, anybody, any person. So it says, if any person does not know how to manage their household well, um, we'll take care. How will they take care of the church of God? And not a new convert. Yeah, we, we got that. And uh, so they'll become conceited in the condemnation incurred by the devil. And they, you see, he is not in Greek. It's just and, and, but, must. So I'm looking at the words, the actual words. It's neutered, active, the same, both use. So, and they must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that, again, I don't, it's not there, he, they will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So we see it as an overseer, we put the word in there, elder, the thing that we see that is about a man is the husband of one wife. Okay, I get that. I'm hoping that there's only one wife, not two wives or three wives involved in that relationship, right? Like, and, and that sentence alone gets debated by leaders. And like, well, does that mean like they, if they're divorced because they now have another wife and they're remarried? No, they can't. Like, I'm not getting into that. We're talking about women, okay? So, so but what we see is one sentence in, in this that says the husband of but one wife, 
The rest, it doesn't say he, it just says they, whoever, is looking to become an overseer in the church. And then we see down in verse 8, deacons, likewise, must be men of indignity. But this word men isn't even there. It just says venerable, honorable. They must be venerable or honorable. They add the word men to that. Not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, found in sore good gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These, again, these men, it's not there, um, also must first be tested. Let them serve as deacons. Again, there's that word that we've been talking about, diakoneo, the same word that was used for Phoebe and for the women that were with Jesus, um, as deacons as if they are beyond reproach. And then it says women must likewise, so this is the word women, wife, same thing there. So now he's specifically talking to the women, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, be temperate, faithful in all things. And so the assumption is, well, because he clearly says women here, the rest of this is clearly must be for the men because he brings that here. Okay, I can understand that argument. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, same sentence as the overseer up top, and good managers of the children in their own households. For those who served well as deacon obtain themselves a high standard of great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And that's where that ends, and that can, he continues to write on. And so we see this passage, there's assumptions in there made for men and women, and that have been made for a long, long time. So when you read, well, this says deacons must be husbands of only one wife, then why do we see examples of scriptures in the New Testament where people were given the title of and serving as deacons or deaconesses in the church? Well, if it was prescriptive, we wouldn't see that anywhere else in scripture. It wouldn't be allowed, because Paul said it wasn't allowed right there. He said, no, if they are supposed to have a, you know, a husband of one wife, well, if you're not married, does that mean you can't serve if you're single? If it's a, but we see women over here. Do you see the tension? Again, this is the argument. This is why I believe, and this is Tim's opinion as I'm wrapping up this conversation, that this topic, when it comes down to it, is at the discretion and the decision of the local church to decide where they filter their culture, their context, their understanding of these scriptures, and then how they live that out in leading the, that local church body that they're a part of. This is where I, because we could have discussions both directions, right? Because it says husband and one wife, the rest of that means it's all about men. Like, not necessarily because the other places it doesn't say specifically men. It says anyone who, you know, right at the very first, any trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, then that husband is the only spot where directly says men, so they put men and men and men and men and men and men through the rest of the, the parts. Does that make sense? And so when you're looking at these passages, for us at New Hope, when we're looking at all of this put together, look at the Old Testament, women in leadership who were God's vocal piece to his people, women in the New Testament that were leaders teaching God's vocal piece prophetesses to the local church and the body of Christ. When we see the example of the spiritual gifts that are not um, separated by gender, by men and women, get different ones. When we, when we look at then the submitting and the submission of husbands and wives and how that works in covenant relationships, and then we see these passages when we're talking about leadership in the church, that's why here at New Hope we have decided that women and men can serve in any role and position in the local church here at New Hope Church. We see deacons were, were women Women were prophets. Women were leaders. 
And actually, we see in, I don't know if I have it up here. Do I have it up here? Second Timothy, leaders in the church? Yeah, Second Timothy 2, then, because he says it differently about teaching in Second Timothy 2, because he says, you therefore, my son, talking to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which I, you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to who? Faithful people who will be able to teach others also. And that is a very, that word in the Greek is people. It's not men. He's saying, there will be people who teach the Word of God. Send them out. Send them out. And so this is for us here at New Hope, going through all of this and going through the Scriptures, this is our statement here at New Hope that we are putting into place. We believe that God calls, equips, and gives spiritual gifts to both men and women to serve at every level of ministry and leadership in the local church. The New Testament church gives us examples and models for the biblical character qualifications for both men and women to lead, teach, preach, and be in positions of spiritual authority, including as pastors and elders. We wanted to be as clear as possible. That is where we stand at New Hope Church. And all the things I presented to you are the biblical foundations for why that is where we stand at New Hope Church. I do not ever want to be accused when I get to the gates of heaven that I have held back anybody from using what God has given them to expand the gospel. Whether that is a man or whether that is a woman. And so we're not going to limit anybody from coming up. We believe that the qualifications aren't gender, the qualifications are character. And so anyone who stands up to the character, the calling, and the giftedness that it takes to sit in a role of servant leader, because that's what a leader is in the church. We're not lording over anybody. We're acting as Christ is the head of the church. We're here to serve under the church, to glorify Christ in the church, and to raise up the body to do the works of ministry by the gifts given to all of us. So it is a humbling position to be a leader. It is not a lording over position, right? And so we see anybody who feels called to that, whether they are a man or a woman, it's a pastoral role, or if it's an overseer role, or an elder role, or a deacon role, we don't use the word deacon here, ministry leader is what we would say here at New Hope, that we believe that anyone can lead at that level. Um, and so, so thus concludes my conversation, and I'm like right at 8.30. I have two passages that if you're interested right now, because I want to talk about the two misused passages if you want to. So I'm going to give a pause button for a moment. If you have to go at this point, because it is 8.30, if you have a kid in the house and they're going to get cranky or other things, I would allow you to leave at this moment, and you can do that if you need to go. I'm going to probably talk for at least another 10 minutes about two scriptures, because I know that there are questions, and you may have questions, but I want to talk about two specific passages that I believe get misused. Okay? So if you need to leave, go ahead. Nobody's looking at you. Actually, they will, but they're not going to judge you. They're not going to judge you as, as you go, but I do believe that these are important. So I, I, I'm, I'm feeling that we should do that. So, so, the, so the, yes, so this is our statement, and that's, that's the end of part A. Okay, nobody's getting up, so okay. Um, I do not have these up here uh, on this. This is my last slide for up here, and so I'm going to have to walk through this um, on, on my on my Bible app here real quick. Don't go to it yet, Sean. I'll tell you when to, to hop to it. So I've, I've had arguments, and I would say arguments. I would have, I've had lovely discussions with, um, 
And, and not anybody in this room, but like, like people, like other pastors, and, and even like online as I've read different forums. And, and when you see this topic online, and like if you see YouTube videos about this topic, I mean, you, if you read the comments, you're going to lose your faith. Like, because there are so many trolls on the internet that have their own opinion and will tear apart anybody. That's what they do. So be careful when you're on the internet. Like, don't, I would say don't read comments on this kind of stuff. Um, you, you may find some people who say really good stuff, and you're going you're to find people that are just tearing each other apart. I'm like, that is, A, you're sinning because of your attitude towards one another. Like, you've got to cut that out. Even if you disagree, you're not supposed to tear each other apart or, like, poke at each other. That's not biblical. That's not godly. That does not show godly character. And so it's been interesting as of some of these topics because some of the ones that have come up in the past um, that, uh, that, that people use that say, well, no, no, no. See, I see in the Bible that there's passages where it says women are not supposed to because when women lead and have led the church or have led God's people, it's all gone wrong, and so God is against it. And these are the passages they use to say, no, God is against this. And the first one I'm going to talk about is Revelation chapter 2, verses um, 20 through 21. Um, Revelation 2, 20 through 21 is a letter um, uh, to Thyatira, um, and in this letter, we see that they are getting reprimanded um, by God. So in verses uh, 20 through 21, and you can bring it up on the screen now if you want to, um, 20 21, we see this happening where I'm at. Uh, but I have this against you. So this is, this is, you know, this is Jesus just having it out with this church in the end times. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. That word immorality is sexual immorality. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, um, and those who commit adultery with her into the great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And so I, I want to pull this back because I've heard people use this passage to say, see, like if a woman is leading the church, it's going to be led astray from what God wants. And so women aren't supposed to lead because it's going to lead to a Jezebel moment. I've heard too many times people call women in leadership Jezebels. And I'm like, you could better shut your mouth. And this is me and I'm getting pugnacious now. All right, Lord, forgive me. Like, because when we look at this in context, this is not a passage about all women, right? This is a specific passage and a specific prophecy and a specific letter in context to this church about a woman who wasn't leading godly, wasn't leading in, in godly, as a godly prophet. She was leading people away from God who calls herself a prophetess, but she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality, of sexual immorality, to things sacrificed to idols. Basically saying Jezebel's the one, just like in Ephesus, just like in Corinth, the, the, the priestess who were leading the people away to sexual idolatry. And so he's not speaking against women in leadership. See, if a woman leads in the church, it's going to lead to this moment. It's like, if that's the case... How many men have led churches to a moment that have been way far away from God? Like, I know way more men who have sinned against God and sinned against the church and led people towards places that were never, God never intended them to be. And so why don't we talk about the men that do that then? It has nothing to do with gender. It has to do with sin. It has to do with selfish. It has to do with pride. It has to do with rebellion against God and his rule and his law, right? 
And so when we look at this passage, and whenever people pull that out, I'm like, man, you are way off base the moment you say a woman in leadership in Jezebel, you're way off base. So I would encourage you to never speak that, at least in front of me, because I believe that you are speaking something that is a curse against somebody that never has deserved that curse. That is out of context. And, uh, and so if you see a woman who is godly, who leads in character, has all the qualifications that we see throughout the rest of Scripture for a leader, they're not going to be leading people astray. They're going to be using their gifts to lead people towards God. Now let's go to the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 3. In Isaiah, chapter 3, we see another passage that I've seen a lot come up in this conversation. I'm like, you're taking that way out of context as well, and you're using it to try to say women should not lead. Here's why. Because women were leading, trying to lead God's people, and, um, and God was not happy with them. You get to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, we see Israel is worshiping idols. They've left God. Um, other nations have come in. They're worshiping other idols, even, even to the same thing that we just talked about with Jezebel. We talked about in Ephesus, the thing we talked about in Corinth. Like, there was sexual idolatry happening. All this ugly stuff was happening. They're running away from God. And now Isaiah, the prophet's coming in and saying, this is what God says. And this is what he's saying. And you get to chapter 3, it's God's response and judgment. And, and, um, and, and, and basically, the nation of Israel is in ruins at this point in Isaiah chapter 3. Nobody wants to lead Israel. Like, nobody wants to lead this mess. They're like, I'm not rising up, and I'm not rising up, and I'm not rising up. And so then you get to Isaiah uh, verse 12, where am I at? Verse 12, and, and, it says, and it says this, O my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. And so they take that verse, and they say, See, when women rule over God's people, it, it goes a mess. Because that's what was happening with Israel. Women were leading God's people, and it just went a mess. And God doesn't want that, and he doesn't want women to lead. And it's interesting because, oh, my people, their oppressors are children. So we see that the adults didn't want to step up to lead because they're like, I'm not leading this mess. And so all these, you think about it like in this idea of like youth leading over the sign of anarchy or like chaos or foolishness or prideful youth. Like you don't have good leaders leading and the women are leading and ruling over them. So let's keep reading what God says, okay? Because if you take it out of context, you're going to misuse it and can say, see, that's where it says if a woman leads. So we can, that's why we can't have a woman president, because that's why it says that in Isaiah. You can't have a woman leading a boss in your workplace. You can't, like literally, this is what people say. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. If I could give you a holy slap across the head with a Bible, I would do it. But oh my people... I'm sorry if I'm unloving. Um, oh, my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who guard or who guide you and lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord arises to condemn and stands and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into the judgment with who? The elders and the princes of his people, the leaders. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, the plunder of the poor in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the elders. He's not talking to the women. He's talking to the people who were supposed to be in charge that were no longer in charge. He's not accusing, see, I knew if a woman led, this is what was going to happen. That's not who God is talking to. Look at it in context. Then he describes the women who are, are leading. Moreover, the Lord said, because of the daughters of Zion are proud, Look at their attitudes. And walk with their heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with, with mincing steps, seductive steps, and tinkle the bangles on their feet. 
Therefore, the Lord will inflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs. Well, that's mean. And the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In the day of the Lord, he will take away the beauty of their anklets, their headbands, their crescent ornaments, their dangling earrings, their bracelets, their veils, their headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, and mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Boy, they're going to be a mess without all that stuff, aren't they? Now let's look at that compared to what we read about the church in Ephesus. Women, when you come to church, don't dress how? Interesting, isn't it? Why? Because the priestesses were doing the exact same thing that God's women in Israel were doing. He's not speaking against a woman as a leader. He's saying, women, when you act this way, when you rebel against and you long for the public praise and desire of everyone around you, your heart is far from God. The issue isn't a man or a woman. Look at the heart. And so when I see that people take this passage and they pull it out of context and see, see in the Old Testament, women weren't supposed to lead. I'm like, did you read the whole passage? Or did you pull one scripture and make a doctrine? You're always going to be in danger when you do that. I think Isaiah goes along with 1 Timothy 2. Women shouldn't be about the externals, about beauty, about being noticed, flirtation, seductive, overly ornate and jewelry and clothing. All the externals expose the heart of pride, manipulation, control, and deception. This is what God was opposed to in Israel in Isaiah chapter 3. And so these two passages I've seen over and over get misused. I'm like, I, I at least want to talk about those two. So if you ever say, but what about what it, well, at least in these two, I can say in context, it, you will be pulling it out of context to argue against um, our stance on women in leadership. That's all I got. Um, let me pray for us uh, as we head out. So God, thank you for this uh, talk, and God, I've been preparing this for a long, long, long time. Our leaders have been praying about this for a long, long time, and we've been wanting to do this and speak to our church um, to just get clarity on this so that there's no confusion. We know the enemy loves playing in the land of confusion. And, um, and, and so I pray that we would just have clarity and, and unity on this topic. And God, would you, would you help us as a church be a church that raises up leaders who have godly character, who, who we see the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit in? God, help us to see them in our church and, and raise them up and have the pathway for them to shine, to excel, and to use their gifts. Everybody in this church, God, we want to see that in this church. A church on fire by the Holy Spirit working in powers, gifts, wonders, teaching, preaching. I want to see all of it, God. Because when we see that, we get to see the glimpse of heaven. And you're calling us to bring a little bit of heaven to this broken earth. So as we leave this place, give us a spirit of unity. Even if we have questions, it's okay to wrestle with those and, and let us wrestle with those in grace and love. But God, thank you for tonight and the, these individuals and those watching online who joined us. Help this word uh, just to be used for your purposes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for being here. You know, I, we weren't, I'll just be honest with you. I wasn't planning on doing Q&A for this conversation. This is more of a presentation. If there is something that you say that you personally were like, I don't know about that, we can have a conversation. Us or the elders, Pastor Jim, we can have a conversation, and, that, and that's fine. We can have that conversation. Um, so, so if you have those questions, you can, you can ask. I, I'm, I'll stick around here for a little bit if you have a question. 
Um, but thank you so much for being here. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving me grace <laughs> this morning or this evening. So that's all I got. God bless.